we're all connected via oceans. We're all surrounded by breathtaking coastlines and oceans that are home to magnificent marine wildlife, but it's all increasingly under threat. Here from alumni who are at the forefront of research, protection and conservation of our oceans, discussing the biggest problems facing our oceans and the solutions having the biggest impact on turning it around. You'll also discover how the UWA Oceans Institute serves the need of the Western Australian community. Hi, I'm Vivian White, and I'm the Communications Officer at the UWA Oceans Institute. Today on this episode of Beyond the Hall of Winthrop, we're discussing one ocean, one climate, one future, together. I'm joined today by three UWA alumni, Dr. Danielle Sue, Dr. Emily Lester, and Dr. Emily Pigeon. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Hello. Morning. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Now, firstly, I'd like to ask our guests today to tell us a little bit about themselves and their background. So I might start with uh, you, Dr. Emily Lester. Sure. Uh, well, I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Australian Institute of Marine Science. Broadly speaking, I'm a fish ecologist, but I'm really interested in sharks. I've studied whale sharks at Ningaloo for a few years now, and I also look at smaller reef sharks. I'm interested in where they are, how they help coral reefs function and how we can conserve these species, important ecological roles going into the future. Fantastic. We'll kick off with our next star, Emily, Dr. Emily Pigeon. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here. Um, so I grew up in Perth um, and went to UWA where I did my degree in engineering, in um, environmental engineering. Um, went from there, was inspired by my time at, uh, uh, in the engineering department at UWA to uh, do a PhD. And I did a PhD at Stanford University in the US. And from there, um, I transitioned from engineering into more traditional physical oceanography. And um, then about 15 years ago, joined um, one of the large conservation organizations called Conservation International. And I now lead the oceans program for uh, Conservation International based in the US. I now live just in the San Francisco area. Uh, I feel like I've gone far geographically, but I've returned to the beach in uh, at Cottesloe uh, from a professional point of view. Lovely. Okay, so that's uh, our third guest today. So Dr. Danielle Sue. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me here. It's really nice to talk at the UWA event, I guess. <laughs> so uh, my name is Danielle, and I'm an oceanographer from Singapore, and I work at the DHI branch of the DHI Singapore branch, and we specialize in environmental consultancy with a focus on water. So what I do here at DHI Singapore is that I work mostly on met ocean, climate change adaptation, and blue carbon ecosystems. So by my training, I was a modeler, but now I get to work with a very multidisciplinary team. And our key client here in Singapore is really for the government. So about 80% of our portfolio is for government and we are the main technical consultant for them. So for building infrastructure that will make our coastline more climate resilient. Um, I graduated from UWA in 2020. Uh, I did my PhD with the other Emily, Dr. Emily Lester. So good times. And yeah, so it's it's really nice. It's really nice being able to speak at this event. And I hope that if anyone ever comes to Singapore, you come and look me up here. <laughs> that sounds like a great invitation. Thank you. Now, look, we might get uh, right into today's topic. Uh, one ocean, one climate, one future together. Now, I'll start with uh, Dr. Emily Lester. You mentioned uh, Ningaloo, so I know that a lot of your research focuses on the Ningaloo Reef. Uh, did you want to tell us sort of what makes the Ningaloo Reef so special? Sure. 
Well, Ningaloo is a truly unique part of the world. It's listed as an IUCN World Heritage Area and it's for really good reason. I think the best way to appreciate Ningaloo is to stick your head underwater and have a look for yourself. Like if you go diving or snorkeling, you're going to see an array of beautiful fish, you're going to see relatively healthy populations of coral and even species you don't see anywhere else in the world. We also get lots of charismatic visitors like whale sharks and humpback whales. Uh, so personally, I'm a predator ecologist, so for me Ningaloo is all about the sharks and we know that globally Ningaloo has a really relatively intact population of sharks and that's not the, the story everywhere in the world. We know that on a global scale, sharks have been fished out or functionally redundant from about 20% of the world's coral reefs. So it just shows how important Ningaloo really is for these species. And I love that if you go snorkeling, you're, you're going to see a little reef shark cruising by. And if you're offshore, maybe a little bit deeper and very lucky, you might see something bigger. You never know what you're going <laughs> to what you're going to encounter. And I'm really lucky that I can do my research at Ningaloo and call it one of my science laboratories. Fantastic. Does anyone else have uh, any wonderful experiences up on Ningaloo? I must say I've uh, never been myself, but it's definitely something I'd like to do. Um, Danny and I got to do some field work. Um, yeah, so actually Emily and I have been on a field campaign along Ningaloo before, and it was for an oceanographic expedition where we were looking at how the oceanography influences whale shark uh, movements. And it was really great because I was on the ship collecting water and Emily was on the smaller boat chasing whale sharks. <laughs> and we were very in tandem and such a good memory. Um, I, I dare say that's one of the highlights being able to, and that's one of the things, right? Like even though I'm a physical oceanographer and Emily is a predator ecologist, you know, we have a lot of intersection in our work because it is the same ocean environment. Yeah. I never forget how you like you had the biggest smile on your face so you came out <laughs> on the whale shark part of the boat. It was, made my day. It was great. <laughs> and like all of you kept going, swim after it, Danny, keep going, keep going. And I'm just like, I've seen one whale shark already. And they were all like surrounded. It was like a whale shark soup. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, I feel like I've I've seen one, I've seen them all, but no, they're all very special. I was just being lazy. <laughs> you can't stop swimming. <laughs> I think Ningaloo is really interesting because I think that it's, uh, if it, especially being somebody who works internationally, uh, the rest of the world's very aware of the Great Barrier Reef. But it's amazing to me how Ningaloo does not have the profile internationally. And um, in some ways, it's uh, just as special and, in fact, even more unique than the Barrier Reef, not to disparage our Queensland colleagues. But um, uh, I think that there's very interesting special things about Ningaloo, whether it be the megafauna that Emily was just talking about, um, the fact that it's so close to the coast, um, the fact that it's still in very good condition makes it actually really unusual globally. Um, and so I think that, that Ningaloo really, to me, points out one of the special things about Australia that we probably don't do as much of, which is there's lots of things to be learned here for the rest of the world. And um, I do think that uh, we we could be doing a better job of really taking the amazing work that Emily and lots of others are doing um, uh, and sharing that globally um, and really talking about these special places in Australia on a bigger on a bigger um, a, on, a, on a bigger stage. Now I might uh, pass my next question over to uh, you, Danielle. Um, being an oceanographer that covers a wide range of topics, looking at marine life and ecosystems. What inspired you to become an oceanographer and I guess what does a typical day for you look like? 
Well, um, I'm from Singapore. I'm on from an island. It's a bit impossible to escape the sea. You grow up with it, your best memories are by it, and we depend on it. And when we think about what comes, you know, at our coastline, it, it's just very hard to avoid. So I think it became a very natural pathway for me to always want to work with the sea. And, you know, just to me, the sea represents freedom itself. And I guess what inspired me to become an oceanographer is that I didn't really decide specifically to work on oceanography until I got to university, where I was introduced to oceanography. Um, when I was a child, I really grew up along the intertidal, so I always thought I was going to be a marine biologist and study starfish. But apparently life had other plans. And when I went to university, what was so amazing was that learning about how the global oceans were connected as a system, I really loved the idea of all the oceans being connected because to me it seems that water has such a connection worldwide and water has memory and being able to understand how the system works where you know let's say if a current weakens or strengthens how that has impacts far more reaching than your local coastline so i think this whole idea of being one system as an for the ocean that really appealed to me on a large scale um, a typical day for me is, wow, ever, I think like I've, I used to be a postdoc, so ever since I came to industry, life has become quite different. I actually have to talk to a lot more people now. Um, and because we also work for, we also have a lot of government clients. So a lot of my, my day usually starts off with, I guess, answering emails and really talking to, you know, attending these meetings and really translating the science to a lot of these policymakers and to these engineers, because a lot of the work that I do for Met Ocean and climate change adaptation, the science is going to inform the design and building of infrastructure for our coastlines. And one of the things that Singapore is really focusing on is how do we, you know, in light of climate change, how are we going to be climate resilient, you know, from inland flooding and from sea level rise. So that's one part of my work, but also because I'm part of the modeling and hydroinformatics team. So I also do a lot of um, hydrodynamic and wave modeling. So I do that for our operational day to day because um, we also look at the like environmental monitoring impacts of land reclamation along our coastline. So I have to create the hydrodynamic and wave models that would support those studies. And another thing that I've also started developing is that I work in the emerging technologies component as well. So like I said, it's a very diverse, it's a very, one day isn't just like a one focus. Um, another thing we have is emerging technologies R&D for blue carbon systems, where we're trying to understand how to model the rate of carbon sequestration, carbon storage by seagrass and mangroves and, and giving it a case for restoration work and say that, hey, if you restore this amount of mangroves and seagrass, this is the amount of carbon that will be stored into a system. This is projected carbon and you can even use that for offsets. So it's part of, it's, it's a very broad ranging work of and covers a lot of projects, but I really like it. It keeps every day very different. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm quite busy by the sounds of it. Yes. <laughs> and we have a lot of offices like DHI, Water Environment. We, we're an international company, so sometimes I end up working US or the Denmark hours to like talk with our colleagues abroad. So, yeah, <laughs> it's very varied. Absolutely. Great. Now, I might uh, have a pass on a question now for Dr. Emily Pidgeon. Now, you have developed international ocean conservation programs. So I guess my question is about what resources and stakeholders does it take to create these programs? 
And does the general public know enough and care enough about the future of our oceans? So the second question is very tough, so I'm going to leave that for a minute. Um, I think, so yes, I, I've had the uh, privilege of developing programs that are sort of international in scope for ocean conservation. But when you are thinking about conserving the oceans and the coasts, ultimately it's always about the people on the ground in the places where you are. Uh-huh. Um, and so um, how we start when we're thinking about how do we start an ocean conservation program, it, it really is always about specific places and it's always about specific people, even when we're thinking about the ecosystems, because people uh, live with and are the are part of the ecosystem and, in fact, are really the only part of the ecosystem that we can control. So um, often we will start programs. So uh, Danielle was just talking about blue carbon. I started working on blue carbon about 10 years ago now when it was very new. Um, And um, ultimately, we really wanted to think about how can we use these coastal ecosystems, these mangroves, these seagrasses and these salt marshes, um, how can we use the fact that they are actually significant for climate mitigation to increase conservation and restoration of these ecosystems? Ultimately, that was the goal. But to really answer that question, we had to go and sit and talk to people on the ground, whether it be um, talking to people on the coast of uh, up in the Kimberley, um, people living amongst the mangroves up there or on small islands in um, Fiji or um, amongst uh, salt marsh areas of um, northern Europe. And really understand how how they are using these ecosystems and why it is that we're losing them. And so I think that um, and then once you understand those questions, then you can get the science community involved um, or with the science community, you can um, really begin to answer those questions and then turn the answers into um, uh, real solutions. And that can vary dramatically from. I've worked uh, from the level of the international climate negotiations um, and finding those sorts of reasons all the way down to um, sitting on the beach and designing uh, restoration projects on the ground uh, with communities in the Philippines. Um, So the answer to how do you design a program is uh, top down and bottom up at the same time, but always really having a purpose in mind and really understanding that your purpose has to be uh, sort of has to be built with um, those that will be impacted by it on the ground. And so I finally answer the second question, which is do people really understand the importance of oceans and, and what's necessary? It, it depends on where you are. I find that people who live by the coast and by the oceans and definitely uh, in many of um, some of the more economically vulnerable places that we work they're very in touch with how important their oceans are to their long-term survival. And I think it's uh, countries like Australia or the US where I live right now that people lose that connection. And when you lose that connection, that's when um, it's very easy to forget that, um, you know, that the coasts protect you from the storms and that um, produce much of the food um, that many of us survive on and are, are a really important source of livelihood. So um, uh, I think that uh, the answer to the second question, you know, do people really understand? Um, I think uh, yes, in many parts of the world, but I do think in places like here we are sitting in Perth, I think people are disconnected from their 
actions um, with the impacts. And I think um, because we're not as connected as we once might have been. Now, everyone else is nodding along in agreement uh, at that. So I'll, I'll open that question up if, uh, if uh, Dr. Lester or Dr. Sue had some comments on that as well. I just wanted to say I thought that was a great answer and I completely agree that we do when you do lose the connection all these problems that we were talking about they, they're out of sight and they're out of mind and it's easy for people to kind of forget about it and to check out and I think it's really important like you were saying to work with people and to yes yeah, people care about what they what they love right and what they connect with and to build that sort of connection it's really important if we're going to tackle some of the problems our oceans are facing in the future. Yeah. Um, Emily made a, a point that I think is really important is whenever anybody asks me what can they do to help with this particular issue and I think the most important thing you do is go and get wet or go I mean I work in these coastal wetland systems go get muddy yeah. and um, <laughs> really really <laughs> connect with them because I think people don't really I think people have lost their connection to these systems. And so going in and reconnecting is, I think, the first important thing. There's lots of next steps, but that's always a good first step. Yeah, I think that's so important because, you know, one of the things that I realized ever since I moved to industry is how to make sure that the people who are building this understands why they are building it and who it's building it for. And I was at a conference last week and it was so interesting because there was a member of the IPCC who was there and said, oh, um, you know, the IPCC, they are the global authority on sea level rise. There's a consensus. So countries need to stop trying to issue their own numbers. Why are you trying to come up with your own numbers? But the thing is, when we think of for my country, we're so small and the resolution of the models that are used in those global models is not directly portable to us. It's not directly applicable to us. And I thought it was so amazing because someone from the audience said that to me, it's not about who is the global authority. To me, the authority is the people that this is for. Why do we do climate change adaptation? It is for the people and the communities who will have to adapt and to live with this. And it can be quite disconnecting even within the scientific community where you can say maybe 0.4 meters of sea level rise is not very high. But to me, that's the difference of whether I see a seagrass meadow or not at low tide. <laughs> so that's why it's so important to really go out to the coast, especially if you're there, and then you will understand like what does one meter of water look like? What does four, four, 40 centimeters of water looks like? Okay, now I have another question for Dr. Lester. Now, your research at uh, UWA involves philanthropic support and collaborations with uh, research, government, industry organisations through the Oceans Institute. So for you, how important is that philanthropic support, the collaboration to the research and the work that you and other researchers do? Uh, yeah, so my PhD was generously funded by the Kieran McNamara World Heritage top-up scholarship and from he just as a bit of background for who Kieran McNamara was he was the director general of parks and wildlife or department uh, DBCA here now and he was a really passionate advocate for the WA's environment and was really responsible for steering Ningaloo's World Heritage nomination so in WA we owe so much to his legacy and I was really honoured to meet his family and to do some work that tried to continue the important work he was doing and as well as coming up with research that came up with, you know, lots of conservation outcomes for Ningaloo, especially the support of the from the um, 
family also really meant that I had a bit of freedom to think about knowledge generation too and answer some really important ecological questions and gain some new knowledge. And sometimes you don't always have the opportunity to do that. So lots of funders, they like to hear tangible conservation outcomes, right? They want to say that your research is going to reduce carbon emissions by X percent, or it's going to reduce bycatch of this species, or come up with a product that you can market. And sometimes the knowledge generation itself is kind of left behind. It's hard to it's hard to fund that. So I was really lucky that I got to delve into that now. And we're, you know, turning that knowledge into conservation outcomes now. Stay tuned. <laughs> I'm really excited. But, it, you know, that wouldn't have been possible without the support of um, the Kieran McNamara World Heritage Scholarship. I think uh, it's really interesting that the funding, um, people understanding the importance of, of uh philanthropic giving is uh i think people don't really it's another thing where people don't really understand that um uh the government in australia is actually very generous by world standards in supporting science and activities but as emily just said many of those funds go because it's government money go for very specific tasks which is is wonderful but those tasks are only possible because there's been a sort of exploration and thinking and um sort of if you like some real research development sort of really stuff that you can't really not work out what's going to happen until you've done it and that sort of uncertainty is where innovation comes from it's where new ideas come from but it doesn't lend itself well to the the funding that comes with where you need specific very um well defined at the beginning outputs and so i think some of these philanthropic gifts um that support exploration support innovative thinking uh what makes institutions like uwa um globally recognized in in oceans um, amongst other things because that's where you get the space to think of the things that nobody's thought of before um, and so that's i think really important 100 percent. it's such an important part of the scientific process and i agree sometimes it does feel like it's left behind and i was really really lucky to be able to work with uwa and the australian institute of marine science for my phd and kind of drawing from their resources and the philanthropic support i was able to yeah really delve into that part of science and the freedom was just incredible i really i liked that but i think also with the um you were talking about collaboration before in the, in the question and having access to the researchers at um, Ames and UWA was just incredible for me. I even got a bit starstruck in my first week of my PhD. So I was, you know, walking to my desk and being like, oh my goodness, that is Professor so-and-so. I've read their paper. And then it turns out they're a completely normal human being and really nice and very generous with their knowledge. So yeah, that was that was a really nice part of my PhD too. Amazing. We do have a lot of uh, the state's leading marine researchers based here at the UWA Oceans Institute. So I guess um, my follow-up question would be, how does the Oceans Institute serve the needs of the West Australian community in that regard? Yeah, they by having all of these different research institutions inside the Oceans Institute and in the Imrock building especially, it's just become this incredible hub of marine science. And it just facilitates so much collaboration between different stakeholders like the UWA researchers, federal government agencies, and 
it's just great that you can message someone and say, hey, I've got this idea. Would you mind chatting about it? And then you can just go grab a tea and have these really important <laughs> face to face conversations. Um, it just makes it so much easier. And that's one part of working in the UWA Oceans Institute that I really like. And it just helps us fill some important knowledge gaps and inform the robust science policy that we're going to need in the future. I also think that the Oceans Institute, um, uh, so I work, I, well, despite the fact that I'm based in the US, I work with researchers at uh, UWA. And um, so I think that, that the Oceans Institute sort of fosters a level of this interdisciplinary science that Emily was just talking about that um, then lends itself to the, to the institution being connected globally and providing that expertise and, and really bringing the learning from Western Australia um, to, to, you know, those of us who work internationally. And so I think by having that hub that allows that sort of um, fostering of great ideas that can be spread globally. I actually found my current role thanks to a connection that I had made at the UWA Oceans Institute. Um, Paul Erftemeyer, he works on mangroves and he's very well known for it throughout Southeast Asia and in Australia. And I used to have lunch with him he was my lunch buddy. And after my, on my, when I was wrapping up my postdoc, I really wanted to go back to Singapore and I dropped Paul a message. I said, hey, you know, I'm heading back to Singapore. It's been a while since I've been home. And he's like, these are the people that you should talk to. And so that's the thing, like you could be in Western Australia, but you have such a global connection that you could be, this, these are the right people to talk to. I think you'll be in good hands there. And during my PhD, I was working on the Indian Ocean. And of course, Western Australia is the perfect place to study the Indian Ocean. And, you know, we were, I guess, in a sense, that anchor for a lot of the UNESCO International Indian Ocean Expedition as a base for a lot of the scientific community to come to Western Australia and share their knowledge. So I think the Oceans Institute has managed to position itself very well locally, regionally and internationally. I've got uh, one more sort of question. I might just uh, want have a think about uh, getting everyone's input on this one. So the oceans are home to many unique organisms, as we know, but it's also sometimes one of our largest dumping grounds and the extraction of fish and other marine life does continue at a fairly unsustainable pace. So I guess my question is, what is the biggest problem that our oceans are facing to date? And what are the solutions that are having the biggest impact in turning this around? I think the answer to this, this is an interesting question because the answer's changed in the last five years, in my view. I think that if you'd asked me this question when I started on ocean conservation 10, 15 years ago, I would have told you coastal fisheries or coastal pollution were some of the biggest uh, impacts and they're still very significant. But I think um, uh, the scales have changed and climate change is now the single biggest um, threat to the oceans. And I think in terms of um, impact on ecosystems, you know, the, the shifting changes that we're seeing are fundamentally shifting the oceans and, and really challenging us to manage this system that is now dynamic, the goalposts are changing. And um, so I think, I mean, the, while there is a lot of work that can be done to build up the resilience of these ecosystems to deal with climate change, some of the great work that Emily's doing in Ningaloo to build up, um, uh, to protect those areas, uh, Danielle in Southeast Asia, et cetera. Really, the only real solution is addressing the cause and really reducing our emissions and, and, and um, addressing the bigger climate change issues. So the 
biggest thing we can do for the oceans is reduce emissions. I think Emily hit the nail on the head there. I completely agree. You know, these increasing ocean temperatures, seeing more and more temperature extremes, we're seeing more bleaching events, we're seeing species at the limits of their thermal tolerance, and you don't have to look fast to see these impacts. Look at the Great Barrier Reef, it's bleached four times in the last seven years. And like Emily said, I mean, the solution's been staring us in the face for a couple of years now. It's what the IPCC report's been saying and the climate science has been saying for a while now, we need to reduce carbon emissions drastically and quite quickly. But I think it's important to remember that even if we do manage to do that, and I believe that we will, that we there's going to be a lag between reducing the carbon emissions and actually seeing the changes in the ocean's temperatures. And we're locked in for a bit of warming. So we need to give our coral reefs a fighting chance. And we also need to tackle some of the other stresses that we're seeing, things like overfishing and habitat degradation and pollution. And I know it's a big ask, but we really do need to throw everything at this problem if we're going to meet the scale and the magnitude of the issues facing our oceans. I have a yeah. bit of a different answer. <laughs> I would say that the biggest problem facing our oceans is people. <laughs> Hands yeah. down, we are the root cause. And honestly, I feel that the, when I say people, it's really this lack of consideration because it's like when you don't, when there's this disconnect from the environment, there's also a disconnect from your neighbors and other countries. You know, you're just caring about what's happening in your own backyard. And you would think that nothing's happened to me yet, so it can't be that bad. And I think this inability to think further than your backyard is actually what hinders a lot of solutioning for tackling this global problem because people are just thinking of themselves and their immediate needs. They're not thinking of the future generations. They're not thinking of the people around them. And yes, I agree with Emily that, you know, both Emily's that this is the time to throw everything that we've got. But why are we still not able to do this? And it's because of people, because they don't feel in, they can overcome that inertia to do something. They don't sense the emergency. And that's why you've got the young people out there knowing what's coming. And then the others who are, well, I don't think it's as bad yet. I think we could still, you know, stew a little bit longer in this hot soup. <laughs> yeah, so that's if if you know, I think it starts from a place of consideration. If we have consideration for our neighbors, we have consideration for our environment, that's where the conversation can truly begin. Rather than everyone pointing fingers and saying, no, I'm I, like the developing countries are doing this, the developed countries are doing that. It needs to come to a global consensus. And how do you reconcile all these different stakeholders? How do you reconcile people with all these different needs? And I think the way to do that, to bring everyone to the table, is if there is consideration for each other. A lot of nodding along there too. Right, now look, they were the uh, the main questions on uh, on my list, but uh, mm. I think we have a little bit of time. If there was anything that uh, anyone else wanted to cover or add to the discussion overall. I think Danny brought up a really good point about how we're seeing sometimes people getting a little bit apathetic towards mm -hmm you know, some of the, the threats that we're seeing. And I can I can understand sometimes, I've just read the state of the climate report and, you know, it's a little bit overwhelming. And sometimes when you're confronted with the scale and the magnitude of these threats, you just want to check out. And speaking from experience, I know that, you know, after this maybe another coral bleaching survey, the last place you want to be is in your head 
and kind of processing what that means and you just want to kind of step out and check out but I think it's it, it's really important to not do that and as scientists we need to look out for each other because a lot of us are getting what's called you know ecological grief where we're literally documenting the demise of our ecosystems and and the places that we love and nothing can really prepare you for that so I think, you know, yes, you're allowed to feel sad and you're allowed to shed as many tears as you want to, but you can't give up and you can't check out. And I think that we need to work on supporting each other and keeping on going because we need the science to inform these changes and to inform the policies and the solutions that we need to see. I think there's a, I think that's true, very true, that optimism is a, uh, or let's say, um, Unwarrant, sometimes unwarranted optimism is an essential uh, job requirement for those of us in this particular environment. And you have to believe you're going to make a difference. Um, I do think, uh, though, that um, while every individual has a responsibility here, I think that it, that's one of the places it can be overwhelming is to really un, to sort of think, you know, what can I do? And there are things that everybody can and should be doing every day. But I think it's really, really important that we really um, in, insist that our representatives, that the government and that the um, uh, that our large scale corporations are really working on this, because that's where impact can be made at a scale and it's where decisions are made that uh, that go beyond just the individual. So I, while um, individual choices are important. I think that really large-scale change uh, requires uh, government and large-scale corporate intervention, and we should we should be holding holding those institutions uh, responsible. I think Emily uh, Emily Pigeon <laughs> brought up a very good point that you we're not meant to do this alone, and it's so important to find your community. And what Emily Lester also brought up about ecological grief. How do we overcome that as scientists? It's because we have a community and you know we take motivation from each other to keep on going because otherwise by yourself, you're gonna get very overwhelmed. And also when you're in a community, that's when small changes become big things, right? You're able to gain momentum and you feel well supported that way. Yeah, but most of all, I think, you know, yes, it's good to have optimism, but it's also knowing having this awareness of where you can help best. It's about identifying what are your strengths and how can you help? You know, not all of us are going to be scientists. Not all of us are going to be, you know, protesting the street. Know your strengths and where you can have your comparative advantage in helping to solve this climate crisis. I, I have a thought for UWA graduates or UWA students, if that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I, I mean, I grew up here in Perth and I went to UWA and from there, I really, I've traveled the world. I have amazing, you know, amazing opportunities that um, I got from the hallways of the engineering department at UWA. And um, I, I, I think that um, people should really sort of think about what uh, West Australians have to offer the world and go out there and really contribute. Um, and I think, um, I think there's a lot of, you know, growing up in West Australia, it's very easy to, or I, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's perhaps a little bit more challenging to be connected to what's going on in the rest of the world because we are in some ways so isolated, but to really think 
um, about uh, um, connecting and really bringing the expertise and, and the enthusiasm and, and the amazing human resources that we have here um, because I think West Australians can go on to, to sort of contribute um, in many different ways beyond the boundaries of, of, of Western Australia to, to the rest of the world. So really looking for those opportunities elsewhere is something that I think um, West Australians should be doing. I love that, finding people who are trying to solve the same issues as you and working together. I think that's a really great challenge. Okay, now look, I think that's uh, all we have, uh, all the time we have today. So I would like to thank our guests, uh, Dr. M Dr. Danielle Sue, Dr. Emily Lester and Dr. Emily Pidgeon. I'm Vivian White and thanks for listening to Beyond the Hall of Winthrop. Interested in becoming a UW Alumni Ambassador? Help strengthen UWA's reputation and amplify our international profile by contributing your time and talent in support of UWA's international priorities and initiatives. Visit your UWA alumni website today for more details.